So I started this series on, on Romans, and uh, I'm picking up after a month of other things that, that transpired with, with chapter 4. And I uh, want to talk about, the, you know, the whole topic, if, if you want to, I mean, the letter of Romans was Paul's letter that he wrote to a body of believers in the most significant city of his day, Rome, the heart of the beast, and uh, to, a, to all these believers he didn't know. And by the grace of God, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what he started out to write a letter, and he ended up writing what is probably the most significant piece of literature in the scriptures. Is it, you know, you ever wonder if he knew he was like, oh, I think this will someday be printed in the Bibles and it'll be the longest letter in the Bible, you know, none of that. But in it, he, it's like he's addressing, what is it I want to say to these people I've never met? And he covers basically every doctrine or close to every doctrine that's part of our faith. So amazing. So the, it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, it, and it, the theme of each section as he goes through writing this letter is the righteousness of God, which is what was lost by our rebellion of human rebellion against God in the garden, the fall of man, suffering and sin and all this darkness is in the world because of that. And then the gospel comes to set us free. And, he, you know, and so... Just a, a real quick on-ramp here, Romans 1.16. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, the declaration that God is, you know, he's got this, that his kingdom is crashing into this world. That's what the word gospel means. It's the announcement of a great victory. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, also to the Greek. And for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is kind of a, an introduction to the main theme that he'll go through. And so as he, and he follows that with, you know, the story of, of mankind turning away, you know, chapter, the rest of chapter one. Uh, you know, the, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And, and the rest of chapter one, he just details, and basically by the end you realize, okay, all the Gentiles are guilty. And then he dives into chapter two with verse one, Romans two, one. And therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And now he's speaking to the Jews and, he's, and through Romans two, one, and on through into the beginning of chapter three, you know, he, he concludes that all the Jews are also guilty. So, and basically he's just making two categories, Gentiles and Jews, that everyone's guilty. And the end of chapter three, by the end of chapter three, you realize the whole world is guilty. 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. Because he's comparing the righteousness not with whether we think we're righteous or whether we think someone else is righteous or unrighteous towards us. He's comparing us all with the righteousness of God, which is perfect. Perfect relational loyalty, perfect love, perfect justice, perfect goodness, all that is, you know, encompassed in this word righteousness. And so he says, none is righteous, not one. All of, verse 12, all have turned aside, they become worthless. No one does good. Not even anybody. Well, you know, we do good by 
our standards, but he's, he's got a higher standard here. And then in verse 19, eight, we, we get to why. This is chapter, th- uh, chapter 2, 19. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. By, I'm sorry, it's not chapter 2, it's chapter 3, verse 19. And, and then he, he makes this statement, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, this sounds like it's just, God, we may as well just quit, you know? <laughs> why, why don't you start over? But, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God is manifested. So again, you know, now we've seen that nobody's righteous, but... There is a righteousness which is manifested. Verse 21, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. And he's referring to the Mosaic law of of keeping rules as a means to righteousness. But he's talking about something different. Verse 21, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 gives us the the good news that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, it's like, yay, we got to some good news. But now he goes on, and, and as he concludes chapter 3, he, he's making this point because there was a very strong culture in the New Testament church that people that had grown up as Jewish believers, and there's a lot of people who are in a legalistic system, but they're actually sincerely after God. And so, so they're serious about it, and they keep the rules, and they keep the law, and they feel like we're pretty good people. And so he's, he has to address this because there was a huge, there was a general thought, you know, that would be throughout any place where the gospel spread, where there was a large Jewish population, that, well, you know, if Gentiles want to come into this, you know, they need to, they need to be circumcised, which was a real deterrent to men coming into the church. You know, like the wives would come, they're like, oh, wow, your life has changed. Yeah, why don't you come, honey? Well, <laughs> you know, there's a price to pay here. <laughs> you know, and so this was like, this was a major issue. And do you understand? I mean, from God who wants to save the whole world, this is a practical barrier. For people who have no cultural understanding, they're not looking to Father Abraham. They're not being circumcised on the eighth day before they can say anything about it. You know, and it's like, this isn't going to work. So thank God that in Jesus, all of this is covered. But that's why he comes to this this question at the very end of chapter um, chapter 3, verse 27. So then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded by the law. And this boasting and kind of feeling like proud and glorying and stuff is is something he's dealing with. Now, later, when we get to chapter 5, he's going to say, because we have peace with God, therefore we boast, we glory in our sufferings. And because it's like the gospel turns the normal way of thinking and seeing things on its head. You know, and, and the very, you know, I mean, this is what Jesus did at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he comes out and he goes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, and he concludes with, this is, to me, this is the stinger on the whole thing. Blessed are you when men say all manner of evil against you falsely. Ha <laughs> ha, rejoice and be glad. For <laughs> That's what they did to the prophets who went before you. For, and, and so, I mean, but these things, what, 
this is all part of the gospel. I mean, amazingly, and I've told this my own testimony many times, but, but here that when we first arrived here at our assignment, you know, first we arrived physically, and then after a while we understood our assignment, and we were, you know, the, the new leaders of a church that was in a lot of pain at the time. And, and so I was, I was the interim senior pastor, and I'd have all these preachers and prophets, people that their prophets had come, and they would kind of rail against me and say all kinds, make all these accusations. And it kept, it kept happening, and I'd try to give good reasons. But one day, uh, the last time it happened, actually, that these guys were, this one guy, a prophet, was going at me, and I, and I just, I said, Jesus, this is really hard. Inside, I didn't say it out loud, you know. That might have gotten some sympathy if I said it out loud, but I just said it inside, like, Jesus, this is really hard. And I heard him clearly say, rejoice and be glad. Now, I understood that, whoa, like, I can go from being oppressed to being happy, blessed, if I obey. So I raised my hand. I didn't go through all that process. I just thought, like, well, that would be, sounds better than sitting here getting beat up. So I raised my hand and said, hey, I'll be back in five minutes. Went to the karate corner, went in a room, started saying, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> this is really awesome. Thank you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know, and pretty soon we obey sometimes in our weakness, but God gives us his strength in our weakness. And I, you know, I got filled with strength. Pretty soon I'm jumping up and down, literally jumping up and down, which is what the words rejoice and be glad mean, to literally jump up and down and shout about it. Hallelujah, woo! You know, so I was doing all that, speaking in tongues, the whole thing. And uh, I went back, and here's what the deal, it never happened again. Now, I didn't realize that that, that that slander and misunderstanding and accusation that was being directed at me repeatedly was an assignment of the enemy to stop me from, from taking my place in my assignment. But what I didn't realize is the enemy's attack was actually an invitation from God to overcome it. And when we overcome slander with rejoicing and joy, there's, you know, it's like a promotion or something. It's like, woohoo! I thought it was good before, but, uh, you know, since that day, it's funny, all, you know, through the years, people said, you know, even when I'm, I'm not always happy, but people think I am, or they perceive me that way, except for Anne, because she knows she lives with me, and John, because he, and Brian, they've all been around me, they've seen me. But a lot of people say, man, I hope when I'm your age, I have as much joy as you have. And my thought is, I hope you have more, you know, because I would like to perfect it, you know. Perfect joy. God, just release it in Jesus' name. Okay, so let's dive into chapter four and see how far we can get. I, I want, but, so now Paul, because he's saying no boasting, now he, he, die, he goes into, he says, I want to illustrate what I'm saying. I'm going to talk about Father Abraham. Why would, he, why would he choose Abraham? Because all the Jewish people all through the world revered Abraham. He's the father. And, uh, but also, I think, you know, there's a, a reason that maybe was, was the more spiritual reason is that Abraham is absolutely significant in God's release of salvation into the world. And so, and so he starts out with um, verse one. Of course, that's 
the verse you start with, but, but he's going to he's saying, well, what do we say? You know, there's no boasting. That's how he ended chapter 3. Now he's saying, well, what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Very interesting, this term forefather is the only place that's used the particular Greek word, but it's like he's the pro-father, you know, the, the, the father before the fathers. And Abraham, here's what it was. What was gained by him? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And now he's going to quote Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse 6. And actually, the whole rest of the chapter is kind of like Paul doing a, a, an exposition on Genesis 15, 6. But he says, what does it say? Uh, what does scripture say? Notice he's calling the Torah scripture. And some Christians think we don't need the Old Testament because we have the New, but, but, you know, the New Testament is calling the Old Testament Scripture. Okay, so Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that this is a, a stunning statement, and, and of course, the, the Jewish believers would understand that. But this is really, you know, Genesis 15 is a crisis in Abraham's life where he's just saying, God, you know, this thing's not working. Let's, could we modify it a bit? You know, Eliezer could be my heir. And, and, and then God says, okay, Abraham, just step out of your tent, look up at the sky. And, and, and he gives Abraham the grace to believe. And so, so that, and then, now Paul says, and he goes into a little logic here, verses four and following. Um, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. Verse five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly or the wicked, I think uh, NIV might say, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so this is like, like here's God, Paul is making his appeal you know, to, to think like God, to understand the good news that, you know, the right, it's the righteousness of God, not our own righteousness. So here's, here's the logic of these verses. You know, you know, first premise, when we work, then the, you know, our boss, the employer pays us. It's not a gift, it's an obligation. It's our due. And then, but he doesn't state there's an implied, very important premise here, Point two, which is God is a God of grace who gives freely without constraint and he can never be obligated to any person. Therefore, verse three, which is in verse five, God cannot credit human beings anything on the basis of their works, but only on the basis of faith. So, you know, God is not, by the way, when it says here that uh, the one who, the one who does not work but believes is, is um, justified, it's not recommending laziness at all. You know, he's comparing the idea that if I work and I do righteous deeds, then I'm justified. No, we work and we do righteous deeds because we're justified. It's, it's what shows our justification. It's not what gets it. That's why what did Abraham gain? What did he obtain? He didn't get anything by his good works, but by his faith, Something absolutely changed. God, give us faith. You know, not faith in faith, but faith in God, you know, the one who makes the promises. So, so but, the, you know, the, these verses, actually, this is why some unbelievers, and I, I can think of a few 
relatives and a few people near in my life, they're kind of, they get offended by this because it seems like justifying the wicked or the ungodly it seems unfair. Well, to answer that, we just have to go back to chapter 3, verse 23, that says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason people get offended is they're like, well, I'm trying really hard. I'm a good person. Why would God justify the wicked? No, you don't understand. In God's view, you're not doing so well, and you also need this gift. And, but it is, you know, it's confusing because at the point where we put faith in God, you know, we're not transformed morally. I mean, you know, just be real. You know, you're saved one day, and you go home, and you're still living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And actually, you're so happy about being saved, you might not, it's going to take you a while before you even start thinking like, hey, maybe this isn't right. Now, maybe you have already your conscience is saying this isn't right. But a lot of times, people justify whatever lifestyle they're in. Like, hey, I'm a good person. All my friends are doing it. I mean, when Ann and I got saved and we, you know, we were telling our hippie friends that we were getting married, I mean, people came and said, oh, is there something wrong? You know, is, is Ann pregnant? You know what? I mean, that was the question that was raised because of a different, of a, you know, basically a heathen standard of what's good and what's right versus God-centered. And, you know, God is just so kind, isn't he? And so when he justifies the wicked, that's not unfair. That's actually good news. You know, he justifies rebels. Hallelujah. And even if we're not morally changed at that moment, it changes our status. And so instead of being treated as a criminal, we're going to be treated as a child who needs to grow up. And how, you know, that's a big difference. And, uh, and but, you know, it's not, we, we're not instantly morally perfect, but we are instantly regenerated you know, which is beyond justification. Justification just means, Edgar, you were guilty, but now you're innocent. What did I do? Nothing. I've just thrown out all the charges. All my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, they're nailed to the cross. So in justification, our status before God changes. He no longer sees us as a guilty sinner. He sees us as a beloved, forgiven child. Son or daughter, and that's what we are. But in that, there's something else that doesn't get stated here, is regeneration. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. That, that the Holy Spirit, by the washing of regeneration, is the beginning the renewal of all things. And, and, he, and on top of that, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're not just a forgiven sinner. We are now a new creation with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that is going to start working and changing us from the inside out. Isn't that a lot better than trying to do it from the outside in? And then we get mad at people like, wow, look what they did, look what they did, look what they did. And God said, no, he said like, it doesn't matter what you did, here's what I did. I, I justified you, I regenerated you, I've put my Holy Spirit in you, and, I, and my Holy Spirit will work in you. And the good work that I've begun, I will continue until it's complete on that day. So, you know, anyway, do you get it? I mean, this is really j jumping up and down news. And the result is what we were doing here earlier, an overwhelming sense of amazement and gratitude that spills over into worship. 
you know, and when we're, I was singing this morning, I was crying, you know, I was crying, you know in worship, and I, I just think, this is glorious news. This is amazing. That's why we sing amazing grace. That's why we sing about amazing love. And it's amazing that an almighty, all-holy God would give us freely a completely new status on the basis of trust. Oh, Jesus, to as many as received him, he gives the authority to become the children of God. Come on. It is well with my soul. It's all free of charge. He paid the price. It's a gift. You know, did your parents ever, I mean, maybe your parents didn't give you Christmas gifts, but if someone gives you a gift, you don't pull out your wallet and say, well, how much do I owe you? It's like, no, gift, gift. This is a gift. This is a gift. If we put our faith in Jesus, what he's done for us, and that God raised him from the dead, we receive his gift of eternal life. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, it's a gift. (laughs) Okay, now, because of that gift, we can spend our lives in gratitude and wonder, which is, our proper state. And so he goes on, and now he's talked about Abraham, but now he's going to confirm what he's saying about Abraham by, by pulling out of the Psalms. And so he, Romans 4, 6, just as David, now he's, he's, he's going from Abraham to David, but it's for the purposes of confirming what he's saying about Abraham. David also speaks of the blessing, and I like the the NIV says the blessedness of the one whom God counts righteous apart from his works. Oh my gosh. And so this, this is Psalm 32, verses one and two. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. And so this term blessed is, it's a really powerful word. It, this is, it, in the Greek it's makarios, in, in Hebrew, it's ashray. The Greeks considered this word, this makarios, to describe the, li- the, the life of the gods, you know, the Greek gods, which actually weren't that good, but they were a lot better than the people. You know, they thought, like, this is a godlike life. It's, a, it's the term that it, it equates to abundant life. It means that it is so good for you that people might even envy you. They might even go like, man, why are you so blessed? Why are you so happy? Why are... This is, and David's saying, blessed is the man <laughs> whose sins are forgiven, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I mean, are you glad your sins are covered? They're not like, and they don't get dug up like, well, let's talk about this, you know. It's more like, no, you need to be free from your past. God, we just... You know, this is the good news. It doesn't get any better than that. Okay, so now, you know, he's, he's really talking about Abraham here. But isn't it interesting what Paul's doing? He's doing what rabbis did. You know, he makes a statement from Torah, and now he's going to have another, uh, you know, corresponding message from the writings, the, you know, the prophets and the writings. Were, there were three categories of the Hebrew scriptures. And so, but he goes back to the issue of Abraham, and he's dealing with, he says, look, not only is it free, not only is it a gift, not only is this 
this enviable, blessed, joyful life available to you, but it's, it's arrived at without religious ceremony. And this is, you know, this was absolutely radical, and it's why Christians were often accused of being atheists because, you know, pagan religions had lots of, they were all about ceremonies, you know, and you went and you paid and you got some bulls sacrificed for you, got some dancing maidens to do something and just, you know, that's how it worked. This is entirely different. And so he brings this up. Verse nine, is this blessing, this blessedness, this state of being, of inexpressible bliss and joy. Is it only for the circumcised, but also for the uncircumcised? Now, as I said before, this was a big issue. That For if we say that faith was counted to Abraham, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, we've got that down. That Okay, actually faith can count as righteousness, but how then was it counted? That's important. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the, of the righteousness which he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. Amazing. You know, and actually the rabbis say it was like 29 years between uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, and Genesis 17 when God said, okay, Abraham, you know, I want to put my covenant mark on you. You're going to change your name and all that. But he received that's, it was a sign of the seal that the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This is a key phrase. The purpose of that, that Abraham was made righteous without religious ceremony, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Oh, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You know what he was just doing? He was inviting all you men... Don't be afraid to come to church. Come on. <laughs> you are welcome here. <laughs> you know, you know and, and, but he's also freeing the Jewish people from, you know, because they're kind of offended, like, well, they're here, but you know that guy, he's not circumcised. I'm not going to have him over for dinner. It's like, well, get over it. <laughs> Sounds like something Heidi Baker would say. Okay, the, uh, the purpose was... <laughs> the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Hooray. So that includes you and me. And, to, verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So in other words, he's saying, he's saying look, you know, it's great if you're circumcised, but you, if you're circumcised, there must be the same kind of faith that Abraham had in my promises. You're not relying on, because that was the temptation, hey, I'm good. Have you ever talked to, and I'm, I, I love Roman Catholics, I love Eastern Orthodox, but have you ever talked to a Catholic that you know hasn't, I mean, maybe they went to Mass 10 years ago, you know? Father, forgive me, for I have sinned, and it's been maybe 20 years since my last confession. But they, but they believe, that, I mean, they, they may not believe it, but if you're talking to them, they go, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm Catholic, I was christened, I was baptized, I was confirmed, I ha had first communion, I haven't been back since. You know, and it's like, no, there may not be a living relationship here. You may be relying on, on rituals 
that were important and were based on faith, but you're not walking in the footsteps of Father Abraham. Come on. It's like to walk in the footsteps of Abraham means to have the same kind of faith he did, which was, I don't care what the circumstances are, I am believing the promise of God. And so here we go on. And, and so, the, now, so anyway, hallelujah. Aren't you glad that the promise it can come to us without religious ceremony? Now, verse 13, it also, and, and following, it's also received without it's received apart from keeping the laws. For the promise to Abraham that his offspring would be heir of the world, to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. Isn't that beautiful? So here Paul is taking an unusual term for, for the promise of God to Abraham, not just that he would have descendants and land, but that he would be the heir of the world because he's actually including everybody in this. And for, if the, for the, the adherents of the law were to be fair, you know, if the, law, if the law was sufficient, then faith is null and the promise is void. Verse 15, the law brings wrath. So that's what, the law was good because it brought a consciousness of sin, Romans 3.20. The law is good because it, it actually provokes people to be more aware of their transgressions and when transgression increased, that, that grace would also increase. That's Romans 5.20. But he's, he's just saying that that's why this depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is so powerful. This is the God in whom Abraham believed, the God who raises the dead. He gives life to the dead. How does this apply to us? It applies because sometimes we have no hope. That's the next verse, in hope against hope. Sometimes we have no hope in our natural circumstances. We have no hope in what, we're, what the world is saying to us from above and below but his hope was in the promise of God. So, you know, against hope, in hope he believed. Against any natural hope that he had in his circumstances, knowing that, he, you know, he's 100 years old, Sarah is barren, it's not going to happen. Naturally, he put his hope in the promise of God. Do you understand that? And this is the, the person he had the faith in is the one who gives life to the dead, and one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. So some of you, and I know you guys are awesome and, you know, such a, a, a group of believers, but I, I know there are people that you're looking at circumstances. I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, there's so many situations we're facing, I don't even need to name them, but, you know, like... Vaccine mandates, I, you know, something like 35% of nurses and 
firefighters and policemen who were the heroes in early 2020, you know, who were risking their lives daily. Now they're going to lose their jobs, their pensions, everything, or they're being threatened with that unless they receive this vaccination. And this is not an argument, pro or con, you should make your own decision. But the, the, the um, issue is, wow, this is really creepy. I mean, this is really not, uh, you know, uh, on and on we go, you know. And I realize people are on both sides of that issue, so I'm, I'm trying to walk a middle line. But here's the thing. The God who raises the dead is the God who gives life to the dead, <laughs> which is, you could be maybe raised but not given life, but he's not raising zombies. He's raising people that are transformed in the raising. The God who gives life to the dead and the God who calls into existence those things which do not exist. So it could be like there's, there's no hope in the world, there's no hope above or below you, but the promise of God is saying yes. And every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus because you have put your faith in Jesus who was delivered up for your transgression and raised for your justification. Then you are now living in the resurrected Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. This means death has no hold on you and fear cannot harm you and we can lose everything but not lose Jesus. And it's like, and in that, we also become heirs of the world. Sometimes we, you know, we, we our thinking is excessively worldly. You know, we're, well, I've been a good person. How come this is happening to me? Well, guess what? No, something way better than being a good person has happened to you. You've been swallowed up in the goodness of the risen Christ. Stand up, with, would you please? I just, I want to set you free from public opinion. You know, this is one of the things that happens in revival is that people that are branded and have nicknames and, you know, are mocked or whatever, it's like God totally sets people free like it doesn't even matter. You know, it doesn't even matter if someone says, you're a freak. You go, amen, I am. I am, I am one who's raised from the dead, and I'm walking in eternal life right now. And if this body is destroyed, I will have a more glorious body in eternity where I will continue. <laughs> to do important things and impact this world. God, so I just, I want to pray for every, anyone that, like, don't let any discouragement get on you. Now, last week, uh, last Sunday, I was so encouraged by Sean's message. I was going, come on, God. But I want to say, God, we are free people. We, you know, we are citizens of heaven. Come on. You know, and what, what you do and what you pray absolutely matters because you're cooperating with God in things that he has planned from all ages, but he planned for you to work in cooperation with him. He, he factors your prayers into everything that he has planned for the future. He, all your acts of faith are demonstrations of the gift of his righteousness in your life. Amen. Well, I just, I, I really, my heart goes out to people that are Facing very scary situations, you know, in, you know, Halloween. 
<laughs> it's all scary. I, I'm always crack up. I drive by these houses with these blow up monsters and stuff. And I think like, why would people want to even put that in their front yard? I don't know. Maybe they think it's fun, you know, but the, and, and so, but I think God, how about an empty tomb? That's really scary, you know. They should put an empty tomb in our front yards this time of year, you know. Just to remind us that He is risen. (laughs) That He's alive and you're alive. Amen. So raise your hands. I really, Father, I pray for everyone here facing pressure, facing threats, facing intimidations. I pray that your boldness would be upon your people, that we would never give up, that if someone takes a job away, it's not the end of life at all, God. We just pray those doors would open and that the next level would be higher and more glorious that your glory would increase upon your people, that your boldness would be upon us. I pray, God, that you would answer our prayers and that we would see healings and conversions and signs and miracles, that we would have many opportunities to share the good news of your, your mercy and your power. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that the gospel would would just go forth from this people every place we go. We pray that there would be a, a, a laughter and a joy in our homes that does not make sense. Father, we, we just pray that you would fill us with the faith of all the saints, God. The Hebrews 11 <laughs> hall of fame of people who believed you and saw a better resurrection because of that gratitude. I pray you would release upon us and through us this faith of Abraham, that we would have faith that our sins are covered, that nothing's happening bad to us because of sins and judgment, but God, that you are in this with us. We thank you that you're a present help in time of trouble and that you are the resurrection and the life pray this would be on us, that your glory would increase in Jesus' name, and a people of God said, amen. amen. <laughs> okay, so I want, I want to dismiss you, but I just say, hey, you know, if you don't know Jesus, the, this is a really scary time if you don't know Jesus, and I'm just saying, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know your sins are forgiven, and that he's in you and with you, I invite you to come forward and meet him, and meet him and meet him, because our sins have a penalty. It's called eternal death. It's called hell. We don't like to talk about that much, but it's like you have two choices, heaven and hell, and I just, you know, invite you today to make sure you know where you're going. And secondly, I just say, if you're facing situations where you say, God, I just want your boldness to increase upon me. I'm being threatened, and I want to just respond to that threat in a different spirit so that I'm walking in the joyfulness, the blessedness of my salvation. Just come forward. If you need healing, come forward. Every week, people are healed here. The rest of you, may the, the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you carry his name, as you carry Christ in you, the hope of glory, every place you go. 
Amen, amen. God bless you.